Uh, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, and we'll read down to verse 15. Now, I would encourage you to keep your Bible open uh, because we'll also be going into Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. We'll start with Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Acts 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia in Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we consider very briefly the life of Stephen here in the book of Acts, as we consider how you used him specifically how you use his words. Lord, help us together to consider these words, to consider your word. Lord, would you help us, would you equip us and strengthen your saints this morning, including myself, help me to deliver this message in a way that is honoring to you and consistent with your word. Fulfill your purposes in us as we give ourselves to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to a turning point in the book of Acts. And Stephen's sermon, depending on your heading, it probably says Stephen's speech, I think it's a sermon. Stephen's sermon becomes sort of a hinge. Everything sort of takes a turn after Peter's, after, excuse me, Stephen's sermon. After the sermon, there's a great dispersion amongst the people of God that were centrally located and they begin to go to different places. So far, there's been more of a focus on the gospel being preached to the Jews and after the Stephen's sermon, we'll see a much more concentrated effort on the Gentiles. 
we'll see also that there will be a bolder preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and with that comes much more fierce opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stephen's sermon serves as a kind of lightning strike, and it produces various results, positive and negative. Positively, we see the church after this being more animated with the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we also see the negative reaction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've been considering the acts of the apostles, and in this case the acts of Stephen and the life of the church, I want to encourage us to avoid any thought that might consider Stephen and the acts of the apostles as extraordinary acts. To some degree, they are extraordinary acts because we see the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit of God uh, through these individuals. But let us not for a moment think that these are extraordinary individuals used extraordinarily by God. Because it's easy to sort of make exceptions. But rather, let us consider that these are ordinary individuals used by God for His glorious purposes. So, Stephen brings us to consider much more intently, I think, on how God uses His faithful witnesses. Let's consider the life of Stephen, the very brief account of the life of Stephen, not because the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about Stephen, But many of you who are familiar with the book of Acts know that his life is taken from him very suddenly. And I think if he had lived on, we probably might have heard a little bit more about the life of Stephen. But let us first consider the powerful wisdom of God's empowered witness. We see the introduction of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, the beginning of Acts chapter 6, that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then we begin to see how full of the Holy Spirit Stephen was. Here he is in the synagogue, in the temple, which wasn't the central location of teaching, but was very much the center of community for the Jews. And we have here Many different Jews, Hellenistic Jews, these are Greek-speaking Jews coming from different parts. And they're all centered here in the temple. And as they're gathered here, Stephen, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is performing great wonders and signs amongst the people, and that begins to attract people to him, and then they begin to have conversations. It says that he's disputing with the crowds, all of these different people. And here's where we begin to see how full of the Spirit He is. It's not the signs and the wonders that He does that display how full of the Spirit He is. But it's what comes afterwards. Stephen is just an ordinary man. Used by God. God does not look for extraordinary men and women to be used for His purposes. Because in the eyes of God, there is no such thing as extraordinary men and women. But what we continue to see throughout scriptures, what we see through the book of Acts, is that God uses ordinary individuals as a way of revealing himself and bringing glory to himself. This isn't a question of gifts and talents, but 
but rather there's the question of willingness. How willing is the individual to be used by God for his purposes? So here is Stephen, used by God, filled with the Spirit of God, and he is disputing with many people. Disputing about what? Probably, most likely, the gospel. What else would he be disputing about? That's the point of the signs and wonders, to point people to Jesus Christ as an opportunity to open a door to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he's intending to do there in the synagogue, the center of teaching and community. He's looking to educate people in the ways of Christ, and so the disputing and going back and forth, presenting arguments, counter-arguments, counter-arguments to the counter-arguments, going back and forth. And in these words, to some degree they're his, but they're spirit-filled words. They're coming from the Spirit. It is the Spirit that's giving him the kind of courage and boldness and the, spirit and the wisdom to engage with these individuals, with this crowd going back and forth. And this really comes from a promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. In Luke 21, 10, Jesus says there, a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus makes a promise there that he will give his servants a mouth and wisdom to answer their adversaries. But there's a condition. And the condition is, don't sell it beforehand what you're going to say, which is very easy to do, very tempting to do, right? We want to avoid surprises when we know that we have a conversation or about to engage in, we like to think about what's this person going to say and how am I going to respond? How am I going to defend myself? How am I going to defend what I say? And Jesus says, don't do that. The promise is conditional. He's in effect saying, you will impede the Spirit speaking with you and through you if you settle it in your minds what you're going to say beforehand. Don't do that. It doesn't mean that you're going to change people's minds. That's also a work of the Spirit. Again, it's a question of willingness. A willing instrument in the hands of a skilled musician, right? Can sound melodious, can sound glorious, can sound wonderful, but imagine if the instrument resisted. You tried to play a certain note, but the the instrument decides to play a different note every time. Right, it's an obstinate instrument. It's, it's, a, it's a stubborn instrument. What's wrong with this instrument? It's a question of willingness. Right, are we willing to be an instrument to be played by the hands of the Lord? Not just partly willing, but are we totally willing to be used by the Lord? 
A Christian is one who has already who settled it in their mind and their heart that it is not their will that will prevail, but it will always be the will of the Lord that's going to prevail. Regardless of what I want, regardless of what I desire, it is the will of the Lord that's always going to prevail. So here is Stephen, used by the Spirit of God as a willing instrument, disputing with the crowds. But then we come to, secondly, the rejection of powerful disputation. It says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then verse 11, we have the response. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So how do we know? So it says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. How do we know that they could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking? Because look at the response. They resorted to devious means. It's like the story, the three little pigs, they finally get to the brick house and the, the, the wolf tries to huff and puff and he cannot blow the house down. They're like the wolves who tried to huff and puff and they could not blow down or destroy the brick house of his arguments. And so they say to themselves, if we cannot huff and puff and blow down the bricks, the stones of his argument, then let us take a wrecking ball in order to silence this man. And to show the lengths that they will take. He's disputing with them. He's losing logic and reason, that's what you do in a disputation. He says, let me take you down the, the, the train tracks here. I'm telling you that the tracks end at this point, at this destination. Let me take you there, let me prove it. Right? Let's follow the train tracks. All right, we're following along. You're tracking with me. We're going along. Okay, the train tracks take us to Framingham. All right, great. Now we're in Natick. Great. You're following Swiss so far? Okay, great. Now we're down into Wesley. We're down into Newton. And finally, we come to Boston. You've been following me this whole time here, and it's at the point of the conclusion where they decide, no, nope, that's wrong. That doesn't make any sense. No, somehow you tricked us. Somehow you, you swerved along the different path. This cannot be the conclusion. Even though that's where reason takes you. It's a natural opposition to the truth. In Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind, he says something in that book that's actually quite consistent with what we see here in happening in the crowd's response to Stephen. He writes in this book, freedom of the mind requires the presence of alternative thoughts. The most successful tyranny is not the one that uses force to assure uniformity, but the most successful tyranny is the one that removes the awareness of other possibilities. This is the crowd's attempt to silence any awareness of other possibilities. No, Jesus cannot be the Christ. This one that you say died on the cross and that you say rose again from the dead, cannot be the Messiah. That cannot be the Savior of the world. 
They're not open to any other possibilities. They're not open to the possibility that they might be wrong, which they are, because they have already settled it in their minds to their subjective truth. This is a refusal to accept the power of reason in Stephen's disputation. And so what do they do? Let's silence him. Let's bring up some false charges. So they take him. They stir up the people, it says, including the elders, the scribes, and they come upon him and seize him, and they forcibly bring him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they bring up two false charges. The first is that Stephen is speaking against Moses and that he's seeking to change the customs and traditions delivered by Moses. And by the word change, they don't just mean change. he's not seeking to change a couple words here and there, but to replace the entire law of Moses. And then the second false charge, and it's not totally false, but it's used erroneously. The second charge is that he is against this place, speaking of the synagogue, speaking of the temple, speaking of the place where the presence of God dwells. A similar tactic that was used against Jesus in order to finally silence him. Matthew 26, 59, now the chief priests and the whole councils were seeking false testimony against Jesus. For what purpose? So they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? Right, taking Jesus' words and misunderstanding them, taking them out of context, right? because he was speaking about the temple of his body. And they say, no, he's looking to destroy our temple, the house of God. And way before this, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, tells us that this is to be expected. Matthew 5, 11, blessed. Which is an interesting word choice there. Blessed. Blessed are you when what? When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Another interesting choice of words. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That last sentence is quite significant as it pertains very much to what's happening with Stephen and his coming sermon. So, even with the use of reason and logic in his disputation, they refuse to accept his conclusions. And here we see the heart of the problem. Stephen is a man full of the Spirit of God the same spirit that resides in you and I through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we will see in Stephen's sermon, is that Stephen was also a man well-versed in the scriptures. 
He understood the Scriptures. He was well taught in Scriptures. Right, that's, that's our responsibility as well. Responsibility is to render our lives as willing instruments to be used by the Lord, but also to educate ourselves in the Scriptures, to know the Scriptures, to immerse ourselves in the Scriptures, to be taught the Scriptures, so that through the Spirit, God can use our knowledge of the Word to speak the Scriptures to the world. Which also requires us to open our mouths to be used by the Lord. But what's not our responsibility is the changing of the heart which even Stephen, who was full of the Spirit, could not do. This was a problem of the heart. It's not that their minds were not working. It's not that they could not understand his logic and his flow of argument and his disputation. It's that they refused to accept his logical conclusions that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. This is a hard problem. Jesus points at this in the Gospels. It is always a hard problem. It is not a reason kind of problem. It is not a logical kind of problem. It is not a mind problem. It is a heart problem. Last week, I tried to have an office chair, and I needed to replace the base where the legs are. And if you have an office chair, you know what I'm talking about. There's the cylinder, right, that's attached to the base of the chair where the legs are. And over time, as you're sitting in the chair constantly and it's bearing your weight, right, that cylinder becomes more, more seated, more firmly fixed in the legs of the chair. And so if you try to separate those two things, it's going to take a lot of effort. So there I am last week, trying to replace the legs, trying to remove the cylinder. I'm taking a, a, a mallet, a rubber mallet, and I'm, trying, I'm hammering away at that thing over and over and over again. And I settled it in my mind that only one of us is going to come out victorious in this, and it's not going to be you. I said that in my head. I wasn't speaking audibly to it. But hammering away over and over again, and finally, finally, the cylinder piece let loose became disattached and fell out. Sometimes, the preaching of the gospel, witnessing, sharing the gospel, is like that. You're doing over and over and over and over again, and the heart of the person is as obstinate and as stubborn as that cylinder piece in the chair. Sometimes the name of the game is Perseverance. Are you willing to continue to share over and over and over again as long as the door is open? And what will, the only thing that will set that piece apart, disattach it from its stubborn and obstinate ways, is persevering and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and praying for the power of God to set that thing loose. So false charges are brought before the court, and how does Stephen answer these charges? We come thirdly to an ordinary man and a promise-making God. Chapter 7, verse 1, And the high priest said, 
Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, if you go through Stephen's speech in the next couple of weeks, pay attention to the word father. You might even consider going back home later on and considering the word father because it comes, becomes pretty important through his speech. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give, to, to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac circumcised him on an eighth day. Abraham circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So we immediately see that Stephen is not giving a direct answer to these charges. Instead, he proceeds to begin the conversation with Abraham. Here he is in the court of law, the, his, the, the prosecution, and there's the defense. Stephen, there's no one advocating for him. He's on his own. He's representing himself. And is how he chooses to answer the charges. He begins with Abraham. Remember that the Lord gives words to those who have not settled it in their minds what to say beforehand. And so Stephen gives his opening remarks. And I'll tell you, in considering his sermon, I'll tell you from the very beginning that his sermon has three main points. The first point is the promises of God finding their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. That's one of the main points. The story of all creation, the story of all of history is intending to point to Jesus Christ and that the story of Jesus Christ has its beginning in the story of Abraham. Now certainly, yes, we have the, the mention of the promise of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3, but that promise doesn't really begin to take shape until we have the introduction of Abraham. The second point of this sermon is God's raising up of leaders. Leaders of the nation. Leaders of the people of God. Who will lead them as a nation, but most importantly, lead them as a religious people, as a people of God. And then thirdly, the third point in his sermon is the enemies of God's leaders and of God's revelation. The most, the fiercest enemies of God's people and God's revelation of himself is not the Philistines, it's not the Assyrians, it's not the Babylonians, it's not any foreign nation who's come as of an instrument of God's judgment to enslave God's people because of their waywardness and their rebelliousness and their turning away from God. 
No, God, the, the people's greatest enemy is those from within their own camp. It is their giving themselves to idolatry. It is their turning away from the Lord. They themselves become their own worst enemies. And Stephen has a point to make, especially with this third point in his sermon. So, he begins by bringing them all the way back to the story of Abraham and how God revealed himself to Abraham and how God used Abraham for his glorious purposes. Abraham is a textbook example of a life of faith, called out from his family, called out from his kindred to live a life of faith, of trusting his God even into strange lands and unfamiliar territory. It's an example of a man devoted to God and being willing to be used by God as an instrument. And sometimes, if you know the story of Abraham, he resists, right? Sometimes he resists. It doesn't always turn out well for Abraham. He makes some sinful decisions, and there's consequences for himself and even for others. The orchestra of his life sometimes takes a dark turn, very much like ours. The orchestra of our lives takes a dark turn sometimes because sometimes there are situations and there are circumstances that we don't want in ourselves that we never expected, that we never had any hand in or responsible for, but sometimes they take a dark turn because of our own consequences and sinful actions and sinful choices, and then we come to realize those decisions and we reap the consequences of those decisions. But still... God uses those dark turns and makes them and weaves them into still a melodious and glorious orchestra for his purposes. The story of Abraham is a story about how God reveals himself and how God brings glory to himself, but also the pointing forward to Jesus Christ. This God reveals himself, this God of glory reveals himself, and he gives Abraham a promise that in his seed all the nations will be blessed. He has promised to him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And so he lived his life by faith in that promise. Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, through right doing, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then one of the main points of the New Testament is to show us that the promise of Abraham is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Again, showing us that ultimately, Abraham's life is supposed to point to Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And Paul clarifies what this means. And to your offspring, 
with Christ. That's the original promise. That's what God had intended from the very beginning. That very promise is speaking to Christ Jesus. This is the very promise that Stephen was disputing about. This is the very promise that he was trying to point them to, and this is the very promise that he begins to articulate as he goes into his address and defending himself against these charges. There's a peculiar kind of glory that emanates from the person whose life is given to the kind of life of faith that we see in Abraham and many others like him, like that of Stephen. The life of God's people is a life of faith. And when the world looks at our lives and considers our choices and what we live for, the world doesn't, they can't make sense of it. The world might ask, why? Why do you do this? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? Why would you give that up? Why would you sacrifice this? This seems like the right course of action. It seems like the logical course of action. Instead, you're going in this direction. Why would you do these things? It doesn't make any sense. Recently, I watched this documentary on this, this uh, art heist in France many years ago. It was quite anticlimactic, to be quite honest. Probably a waste of time. I watched it over a few days, like three-hour increments. That's how I justify myself. But here's a, a thief who's hired by a guy who's working for another guy to steal some artwork in this uh, incredible art museum and will pay you in euros, right? And, but in American dollars, will pay you $50,000, let's say. It's the equiv- that's what it's equivalent to. Pay you $50,000 per painting that you steal. And he actually breaks in and takes all these works of art, several of them, and they're worth together millions and millions of dollars. I mean, could you imagine? To me, it doesn't make any sense. You're going to be paid $50,000 to steal some artwork that's actually worth millions of dollars. But it's a perfect picture, I think, of how the world always underdelivers. It always does. One might consider, might think that the treasures of the world are very treasurable, that they are very valuable but they always underperform, they always underdeliver. But when it comes to the Christian life, Christians live for a God who overdelivers. The God that according to the scriptures says can and is able to do far more than what we can even imagine. And that promises that, that the risks and the sacrifices that we make in this life are not without reward, but are rewarded, if not in this life, then certainly in the next one. And how do we know this? What proof do we have? What assurance do we have that the Lord does reward those who give themselves to a life of faith? We have Jesus Christ himself, who left the perfect trinity of heaven who came down into the world. And though he made this world, he was a stranger to the world and even hated by the world. 
and the world crucified this Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself was after the reward. And having died on the cross and buried and rose again from the dead, he was ascended to the right hand of God. And there, at the right hand of God, he received the reward of his great work, the prestige and status that he already had before, but also the prestige and status that comes now as being Savior, who died on the cross for his people. Jesus himself showed in his life the sacrifices come before the rewards. And that the Lord does reward those who make great sacrifices in the life of faith. We don't strive to live a life that makes sense to the world. If we did, then our lives would look exactly like the world. But that's not our aim. We strive to live a life of faith and hope and the God who promises great rewards that the world could never, ever offer. And certainly this life of faith takes us in situations that we would never want to be in. This life of faith took Stephen into a situation when he is forced into a court of law and answer for false charges. Romans 4.18, speaking to the life of faith of Abraham, says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. The life of faith is the life of hope. Hope in the promises of God. Hope against all hope. Hope in a future resurrection. Hope in a glorified body. Hope and eternal rewards. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. There's a kind of holy fortitude that's in the life of faith. It's a kind of courage that's there. And that comes from holding fast the confession of one's hope and faith in God. A courage that still endures the harshest of trials, or even the deepest moments of suffering, and even through the strongest temptations. That life of faith cannot help but exude this kind of fortitude, this courage. Germanicus was a young man who was seized and put into the Colosseum and there the Roman emperor gave him one last chance to recant his faith in Christ Jesus. Recant, young Germanicus, you have your whole life ahead of you. And he would not recant his faith. And at that moment, they released the wild beasts who had devoured him and took his life. And it is said that all the people in the crowds who witnessed this young man witnessed this kind of blazing courage, this fortitude in this man. And it was such a powerful witness that it is even said that many amongst the crowds gave their lives to Christ Jesus. There's only, that kind of fortitude only comes through the life of faith. 
And it is even that powerful to bring others to saving faith in Christ Jesus. And we might consider that life, and we may consider other lives like his. We might consider the life of your favorite missionary that you've read about before, or even other Christians who have endured hard trials in their life, and you might be encouraged by them and exhorted by them. But you might also think to yourself, I couldn't do that. There's no way. But I refuse to believe that because the same spirit that was in Germanicus, the same spirit that was in Stephen is the same spirit who is in you. That kind of strength, that kind of courage, you don't just conjure up on your own. That comes through faith. That comes through the powerful and strong witness of the spirit, the living God who resides God's people. And the Lord strengthens that courage, strengthens that faith, so that if you should ever come into a situation where you have to make a choice of following Christ Jesus, and be persecuted perhaps, or to reject Christ Jesus, The Lord has a way of strengthening us and encouraging us. And that is through the trials and the situations that are kind of a testing of our faith. Every moment in your life where there is an opportunity to respond either in a Christ-like or in an ungodly manner is another opportunity for your faith and your courage to be strengthened. Metal can be hardened. It's a process of tempering. When you take a piece of metal and you, and you heat it to a very high degree and then you immediately cool it down, it, process, it takes you to the process of tempering of, of, and that hardens the metal. All the trials and all the temptations that you face, all the situations that you are called to endure in this life is a way of heating the metal of your faith and in that heating, the, the metal, right, it, be, it can become more malleable, more bendable. But endurance through the trial, responding in a God-like manner, is a way of tempering the metal, of cooling it down and hardening it. And that is God's way of strengthening your courage and the metal of your faith so that in the most dire situations, if you ever come to such a dire situation, through the Spirit of the living God, you are able to hold on to your faith. Even if your flesh desires to take you in a separate, opposite direction. God does not look for extraordinary men and women to use for His glorious purposes. No, He looks for those who are willing. Who are willing to be used by God. To be willing to be used by God, to have their mouths and their hands and their feet used by God for His glorious purposes. Those are the ones that God uses and most brilliantly reveals Himself through. So let us be those kinds of people, those kinds of Christians who 
give their lives, who surrender their lives to Christ Jesus, not just part of our lives, but our entire lives, to be used by the Lord for His glorious purposes. These individuals, Stephen is not an exception. He's just an ordinary individual was willing to be used as an instrument by God for His glorious purposes. May the Lord use us as a church. May the Lord use each of us to be faithful and powerful witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of Himself and the edification of His church.